I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. It's been about a year and a half now since we spent a good bit of time in Ezekiel 37, considering how it is that God empowers his church. As we begin this new year together, I thought it would be good for us to revisit what it is that God does by his spirit. What we'll see as we enter this text together is that the vision and power for new life come from God and his word alone. The vision and power for new life come from God and his word alone. So if you have a copy of God's word with you, we'll read together now Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses. Ezekiel writes, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves." And raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. If I were to ask you a question this morning, why does Ashley River Baptist Church exist? Well, we know ultimately all things exist for the glory of God, but one way we try to encapsulate this is by saying that we are a gospel-centered church committed to Christ-centered worship and life-on-life discipleship for a global mission. We recognize that there is a God who rules everything, and we are one small bit of all that he is doing in the universe. And as we seek to live out this mission together, It's framed by these values, by Christ-centered worship. The idea that Christ is at the center of all that we do. 
of life-on-life discipleship, recognizing that we aren't reservoirs to hold the gospel. We are streams of living water the gospel flows through. We're committed to the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that God's Word is sufficient for all of life and godliness and authoritative in all that it speaks to. We believe in gospel centrality, the idea that the gospel of Jesus is core to who we are and core to what God calls us to. We believe that none of this is possible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit must empower us for this task, which ultimately results in a global mission. The gospel going to the ends of the earth as God's people carry it in vessels as they go. Well, if this is our mission and this is the framework that guides us, where does the power for this come from? Well, our text this morning clearly says it comes from God and his word alone. If in the last couple of weeks someone called you a Scrooge, that is not a compliment. Ebenezer Scrooge is one of the most infamous characters in English literature. Made famous in Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol, and since in a number of adaptations, plays, and, and movies since then. See, Scrooge was a miser. Not only was he a miser, he was a cruel, greedy man. We meet Scrooge one night on Christmas Eve, seven years after his business partner, Jacob Marley, has passed on. And upon meeting Scrooge, we learn that he does everything he can to hoard money to himself and take it upon, take it out on the miserable rabble around him. We meet a couple of men who come to Scrooge and they ask him for money to feed the hungry, to give heat to the poor at this cold Christmas time. Scrooge cruelly turns them away. We meet Bob Cratchit, the sort of hapless fool who works for Scrooge but who has a wonderful loving family and ironically is the happy person in this story but he works for a cruel harsh taskmaster and it's only begrudgingly that Scrooge grants Cratchit the day off to be with his family just so he doesn't look too bad to the surrounding people but that Christmas Eve as Scrooge goes to bed someone appears to him in his dreams and it's his long dead partner Jacob Marley now, Marley has been dead for seven years, and when he appears to Scrooge, he's wrapped in chains and money boxes. And he is doomed to wander the earth as a prisoner to his greed. He's miserable in his death, and he warns Scrooge, if you're not careful, you'll turn out just like me. You have only one chance, and this night, three spirits will appear to you. The ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And if you know the tale of A Christmas Carol, you know that this night changes Ebenezer Scrooge from a miser to a generous man because you see there are few things more fearsome than encountering the walking dead. And this encounter with his dead partner changes him forever. So why in the world does God include his own version of a story like this in his word? In a much more beautiful, yet at the same time, bizarre picture of dead people living and walking. The first thing we encounter in this passage is Ezekiel's vision. God calls his prophet into a wasteland full of bones. 
can only imagine how eerie this moment is for Ezekiel. God calls us to do a number of things, but it's not typically to visit a place like this. And it's even further surprising because the end of chapter 36 is a beautiful exposition of the new covenant. The covenant that God will make through, for, with his people through Jesus Christ. You see, the old covenant required perfect obedience to the Lord. But the new covenant isn't like the old. If you'll look back just a few verses in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. The Lord is speaking and says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now this new covenant is essential to understanding our relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we find it not once in the Old Testament, but twice, because we find it as well in Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah gives us the same words, but explains it a little more. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. In other words, what happens in this new covenant is this. God takes what is unnatural to us what is outside us and by his spirit he puts it in us he gives us a new nature and what formerly was unnatural now becomes natural to the people of God because God's spirit lives and breathes and moves within us he takes our relationship with the Lord and he moves it from this external system based on some sacrifice and moves it to an internal relationship of obedience based upon the completed sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's from this vision of new life, the power of the Spirit at work within us, that we arrive in Ezekiel 37. Now this feels, it's, it's, it's like whiplash. It's extremely jarring because we have this beautiful vision of what will come in Christ and then we find ourselves in a graveyard. We move from a vision of new life in Christ to a vision of death, not unlike what Simba found himself in, in the elephant graveyard. If you're picturing what life in Christ is like, you don't want it to look barren, a wasteland where there is no life. But a scene like this is right where Ezekiel finds himself. Some years later in Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. He leads him there to be tempted, and on that day, and every other day of the life of Christ, Jesus Christ guaranteed the success of this new covenant by his victory over sin in our place. And on this day, in Ezekiel 37, in a small whisper, a faint foreshadowing of what is to come. The Spirit leads Ezekiel into the wilderness, to the valley of dry bones. Now, imagine that you are standing there, not Ezekiel. 
Just try to remove Ezekiel from this for a moment and imagine that it's you standing there. He brings you out, sets you in the middle of a valley full of bones. Behold, they were very dry. Now, why does Ezekiel go to the extent of telling us that these bones are very dry? How do you get dry bones? Those are bones that have been dead a long time. Perhaps you remember the cult classic Princess Bride when the hero is apparently dead. His friends take Wesley to the miracle worker, Miracle Max, and when he arrives, he says, I'm here to tell you that your friend is only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Well, Ezekiel goes to great lengths to tell us that these bones aren't mostly dead. They're all dead, dead and dry. There is no remnant of life in them. And when you're all dead, you're all done. So when the Lord asks Ezekiel, verse 3, can these bones live? It is not a trick question. It is very obvious that they cannot. Dead bones, dry bones, can't live. It's not possible. But Ezekiel is a prophet of God. He knows God. He's seen the power of God. And so he gives a pretty cagey answer. Well, God, you know. Like, teacher, you know the answer. So, verse 4, God commands Ezekiel, speak to these bones and say, hear the word of the Lord. What can skeletons hear? nothing. Dead people hear nothing. Especially people that have wasted away to become skeletons. So this valley is not only full of dead people, it's full of impossibly dead people. They are long dead. These bones coming to life is impossible. But God is the God of the impossible. Verse 5. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. God will breathe into a skeleton with no lungs. And then the lungs that aren't there will fill with breath, and the skeleton will live. But when a miracle like this happens, how do we respond? The end of verse 6. You shall know that I am the Lord. The point of all of this is so that people know that God is God and worship him. So in verses 7 and 8, Ezekiel obeys. Verse 7, I prophesied as I was commanded. Now I cannot even imagine how this, how, how this feels. With what, what begins to happen next. This is so picturesque. The bones start to rattle. <laughs> I mean, imagine that you're Ezekiel standing there, God speaking to you, and the next thing you hear is, Clack, 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 clack. I mean, I am freaking out in this moment. This is not cool. I'm standing in the middle of a valley of long, dead, dry bones, and they start to rattle. I'm like, I am out of here. Bones are shaking, rattling, moving. And then miraculously, they start to fill out from the inside out. Sinews, flesh, and skin. 
So where there were bones before, now there are dead bodies. There was no breath in them. So we've moved from skeletons to dead bodies. I'm not sure which is worse. So at this point, we've got bodies with all the structure, appearance of a human body, but they're not actually living, breathing human beings. And it's not until verses 9 and 10 that life actually enters these dead bodies. The Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy one more time. Prophesy, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Well, there's a word that appears over and over in this passage. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord. Verse 5, I will cause breath to enter you. Verse 9, come from the four winds, O breath. These words, spirit, wind, breath, are all different ways of translating the same Hebrew word, ruach. And it appears 10 times in 14 verses. It's like spirit, 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 spirit. So we have the spirit of God hovering like a cloud over this entire passage. Blowing from the four winds, literally breathing the breath of life into dead bones. So in verse 10, the bones come to life. I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. These bones, moments before, are a rotting graveyard, and now they are living, standing, breathing, an army of people in front of Ezekiel. He had to be freaking out in his mind. What brought this about? What brought life from death? The power of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Ezekiel, he could have found the best strategies, the best surgeons, the best medical centers available in that day and somehow sutured these people together, but it wouldn't have done a lick of good. You could have the appearance of a body, but dead bodies need a God of the impossible to do impossible things to live. And the work that we need God to do in us and through us is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. And having good music, good programs, good structures... Good strategies apart from the power of God's spirit is like a bunch of doctors walking into a valley of dead bones and attempting to suture those bodies together. No matter how good they are, they cannot bring life. Only God's spirit can do that by the power of God's word. You can build the form of a skeleton without having life. Well, how is it that the Spirit of God works? Look again at verse 4. The Lord speaks, say to these dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. In other words, God gives new life to the church by the power of the Spirit through the faithful preaching of the word. God's word gives life. It's a living, breathing, active word. As Hebrews 4.12 puts it, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very center of our beings. God's word lives because God 
gives it life. The conversion of sinners and the faith of our children doesn't ultimately depend upon our strategies. It doesn't ultimately depend upon our programs. It depends upon the power of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And apart from that Spirit working through that Word, we have no hope. You see, it's possible to grow a church in numbers through music, programs, but it's impossible to grow a living, a breathing, a body of Christ, a worshiping church apart from the power of the Spirit of God pouring out through the shepherds of God speaking the words of God. So we pray. We pray for God to work through his word in us and among us. We pray, God, would you speak through your word? So when it comes to leading our church, we have plans, ideas, prayers, building relationships, creating a path toward the future. These are important. But when it comes to our basic underlying hope, it's real simple. I love the story that Charles Spurgeon told as he was describing this. There's a lion in a cage. Some people are taunting this lion, poking at the lion, and, and as some people who are lion advocates see this happening, they gather around the cage and begin to protect the lion. Miss Spurgeon imagines this, pictures this, tells this story. He suggests this. I would suggest to these people, if they would not object, feel that it was humbling to them, that they would kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. You see, God's word is like that lion. It doesn't need protecting. It needs to be unleashed. Sometimes God's people do all we can. It's like, if we hide this, no one will know what we think. If we hide this, perhaps then people will like us enough that they won't care what's in the cage. But the key is to unlock the cage and let the lion loose. Let the word speak. This living, acting, breathing word. We live with the word of God at the center of our worship because the word is like that lion. We encage it, and the word does the work. Well, now the Lord gives some insight into why he has Ezekiel go through this whole process. Verses 11 through 14, we see Ezekiel's hope. Well, if you follow the history of Israel through the Old Testament, you have a series of kings. First, you have Saul, David, and Solomon ruling over a united kingdom of Israel. But then with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, you have the kingdom split into two. Ruled by Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and then a, a host of kings, most of whom are not very good. Well, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. Ezekiel finds himself living in that era of divided kingdoms. He's alive in 597 BC and exiled himself to Babylon. And it's 11 years later, as he still lives, 586 BC, that the southern kingdom falls. At this point, the United Kingdom is a distant memory. 
the northern kingdom long dead, the southern kingdom now shattered. God's people are hopeless. It appears that the people of God and the promises of God have failed. But though God's people have failed, God's promises have not. So this is a remarkable moment in verse 11. These bones, God says, are the whole house of Israel. And by this time, Israel's completely lost hope. They're in exile. They're held captive by a much more powerful nation. Verse 11, our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. So what does God do? Verse 12, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Only God can take dead people and give them life. And only God can take spiritually dead people and give them life. So we pray that God will take his spirit and breathe life into dead bodies. That's exactly what he does every time someone comes to faith in Christ. Ephesians 2 pictures it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. Well, what are the dead bones in this valley doing when Ezekiel shows up? They're lying there. They're doing what dead bones do. Yet these same dead bones now stand before Ezekiel, breathing, living, moving. What changed? God's Spirit breathed life into dead bones. And the fact is that there are spiritually dead people here who need God's Spirit to breathe life into their bones. It's possible to attend church your entire life. You do the right things. You show up at the right place at the right time. But it'd be like stitching those bones together. It's a shell that resembles something, but it's not true life. You're not a living, breathing, empowered child of God carried along by the Spirit of God because you look and there is no fruit of this Spirit in your life. You're like the bodies who stood in front of Ezekiel that appeared to be bodies but had no life in them. It's the form of godliness without the power of God. The appearance of a real body, but no life. A form of pseudo-Christianity, but not the reality of a living, vital relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a person just like this. Nicodemus had all the form of godliness. He knew the Old Testament scriptures far better than you or I, had memorized large portions of them, no doubt. And during this conversation, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He hopes no one knows he's there, that he's asking this teacher these questions. And he asks Jesus, how can a man be born again? Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound 
but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, how do I become a child of God? And Jesus answers by describing the effects of the Spirit of God in the life of a person. And then remarkably, after describing this movement of the Spirit, the Spirit through Jesus breathes out these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through, the, through him the world might be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God's Spirit enters our heart through faith in Jesus Christ. As Jake quoted earlier, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must indeed can be saved. If if you have embraced a form of godliness without true faith in Christ, you are as dead as those dead bodies. Oh friend, would you turn, turn from your sin, turn from your self-reliance, Turn from dependence upon your own works, upon some semblance of outward form of Christianity, and trust Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This hope brings us to a measure of success. How is it we know when God has done his work? We find the phrase... I am the Lord, nine times in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And it typically flows like this. After you see my work, when you see what I do, then you know that I am the Lord. We see this idea in verse 6, then in verse 13, and again in verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am am the Lord. This is God's work. And when we see God do it, we see who God is. And we glorify God for who he is and what he has done. Imagine with me for a minute that we really could suture life together. We could sew bones and put skin on them somehow. We strategize, we work hard, and and we could make fruit grow. What happens? This bump. We awesome. We got this. We can engineer this ourselves. But what happens when something impossible happens? When something occurs and it's very evident that only God could do this. There are no fist bumps, there are hands raised. God gets the glory. Only God can do this. Then we know, in the words of Ezekiel 37, that God is the Lord. We know that God is at work because the impossible has happened. And this leads us to worship. This leads us to sing of God's amazing grace, to praise God's amazing power, to sing his great name. And when we respond like that because we see God at work, we get less concerned about whether we as consumers are receiving every specific thing that we are looking for. Because we see God at work. 
mean, spiritually dead people can be happy because they get what they want. But God's people get excited about joining God in the work that he is doing. So what then is our hope for change? And the first is this, that God, only God, raises the dead, even dead churches. Now, God has done the work of the gospel through our church for 78 years. And if you're counting, I am not 78 years old. We sit here as heirs of God's work through people before us. And if Jesus tarries, God will be doing the work of the gospel long after all of us are dead and gone and distant memories. But for two and a half years, we've averaged something like two funerals a month. And you know, if you have 22 to 25 funerals every year, that is not a sustainable pace. It doesn't even take a math genius to figure that one out. It's impossible apart from a movement of the Spirit of God. But even more than this, beyond the idea of people physically dying, and they do, it's possible for a church full of living people to be full of spiritually dead bodies. Like the bodies standing in front of Ezekiel. Churches can have structures, programs, sinews, bones, people, yet not be living, breathing, alive, growing organisms. They can be an organization, but not a living organism. You see, activities and programs, people aren't themselves indicators of true life. Only God does that through the conversion of sinners and the spiritual growth of his children. And so our faith lies in this. God is the God of the impossible. And yet remarkably, as God does this impossible work, he works through ordinary means. God has always worked this way. Through the word. Through prayer. Through communion and baptism. Through the fellowship of the saints. Often, most often, God's work is incremental, stage by stage. As 2 Corinthians 3 puts it, one degree of glory to the next. And a degree and a compass is not much. It's just a shade, but it's growth. But there are times in church history and sometimes in our lives when God breathes out his Holy Spirit like fire and it spreads and consumes our desire for sin. It breathes into us a holy passion for his word. It draws people into the kingdom of God. Revival is the most exciting work imaginable. But if you've ever experienced anything like this personally, you also know it tends to be incredibly painful. See, God doing this empowering, purging work is God purging our longing for this world and giving us a longing for the next. I've never experienced a powerful moving in the Spirit of God in my life through His Word that wasn't also painful. I mean, it's always worth it in the end, but the process of humbling and repentance, the process of God burning the refuse from our heart is painful. Have you ever had an experience like that? where God humbles you. 
God breaks you on the altar of his grace. And you know, like Hebrews says, that you are naked and exposed to his eyes. The judge of all the earth is your judge, and your only hope is Christ. It's a breaking, shattering kind of feeling. We know that God is at work when God's people are humbler, more open, more broken, more loving, more gracious. So we believe that God can do impossible things and we pray for him to work. We anticipate that he will work. But we also can't be surprised if that work feels different than we expect it to feel. I believe God has amazing days ahead for our church. But it's possible that it feels less like a victory parade and more like the pain of God purging and shaping us. And God is changing our church. God is growing us. But he also, by his word and by his spirit, is pressing in. He's revealing areas of our relationships that need to change. Areas of our lives that need to change. He reveals individual areas and areas of our church structures that need to be pruned and conformed to the image of Christ. And nothing presses this in front of our sight more clearly than COVID. And it's going to be right in front of us as we reopen post-COVID. And COVID has disrupted all of our lives individually at some level and certainly our life as a church. There's some painful things about this. But there are also remarkably healthy things. There's no point in God taking us through all that we've been through this past year and returning to business as usual. There's no point in walking through COVID and then re-erecting the same structures, the same habits, the same way of doing the same things the same way. So we'll walk through this together, patiently, kindly, hopefully, clearly. But know that as we pray through this, we're seeking to create clarity around the specific shape of our worship and discipleship before we reopen we are not simply going to jump back to life as it was. We are not going to attempt to suture dead bones together. We're going to prayerfully pursue God's will for our future. Some of it will be simple, but some of it may be hard. But as we do this, our hope is in God breathing life into the church through his word by the power of his spirit. You see, our hope isn't in methods or programs. And it cannot be in any person or group of people other than the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Our times are in God's hands. And if this work is work that God's Spirit must do, we cannot do it. What can we do? We must pray. We must pray for God to show up. We must pray for God to work by his spirit. Instead of planning, scheming, strategizing, working, pray that God will work. Pray that God will change us from the inside out. 
This is a work that only God can do. And God doesn't need us. But in his mercy, he uses us. And he tells us he accomplishes his work through the prayers of his people. The prayer of a faithful person accomplishes much. Remarkable. Pray for God to work. The change may be painful, but it is worth it to see God give life where there is death. God is giving new life to our church by the power of his spirit through his word. Brothers and sisters, let's join him in that work. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.